services program direct to peace theater. Personal note, I've decided I'm becoming a podcaster. Not like these two, however, I will I will be good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to yet another episode of Director Peace Theater, where your favorite former directors from the former website, Cracked. Still a website, but not for directors. Talk about your favorite movies and uh, discuss why they are or are not well-made artifacts of pop culture. I am one of your former directors and current host, Adam Ganser. And with me is my longtime pal, Adam Ganser. (laughs) Oh, shit. All right. (laughs) You son of a bitch. You (laughs) fucked it up one more time. I can't wait Uh. for episode 11. Just to see what you're gonna do. Uh, oh, oh no, boy. that's it. That's I have <laughs> we no did more it. bits. <laughs> yeah, there's no more bits. I'm Abe Epperson. Yeah, I'm the are. other guy. Yeah, the 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 handsome one, the likable oh. one. Oh well, oh. I mean, I just speak facts. That's all I do. Uh, okay. <laughs> Too far. I like it. I pushed it too far. <laughs> too far. <laughs> too far. <laughs> I won't even give you credit for your humbleness. No. Fuck your humility. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we're here to talk about a, a wonderful film that Abe actually treated me to uh, this week because I had never seen it before. Abe, what film are we talking about today? We're talking about the 2012 science fiction action film. Directed by Pete Travis and written and produced by Alex Garland of Ex Machina and Annihilation fame, Dread. <laughs> I love this. I, I was so mm. pumped that you were like, bro, watch Dread. And that's like all the info I got about this episode. <laughs> yeah, we like, had like an right. extended conversation where we were just like, what's the what's the next ones we're doing? And then uh, we were discussing what makes a good uh, like film to cover on this. And uh, we that it became clear to us after conversation. And I just was like, oh, okay, so that's good. All right, yeah. you seen Dread, baby? <laughs> and you're like, no. <laughs> you seen Dread, baby? And I was like, oh, like, man. Oh, we got to do Dread, baby. <laughs> I felt instantly the lack of camel crushes in my life. The minute you said it, I was like, damn it. Need another cigarette, damn it. Uh, It's quite a wonderful film. Uh, Yeah, you enjoyed it? I really did. I I really liked it, Uh, which is saying something because I think it's fair to say I'm not as much an action guy as many others I know. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I know. That's... Kind of why I picked it. Not necessarily because you're not an action guy, but it's like it was perfect that you hadn't really seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it has that. I'd say that everyone who's watched it, including myself, it's had this the same exact effect on. Just like, oh, my God, I can't believe how good this is. It's a good movie. If you've seen it, one of the main reasons it's good is that it's like super streamlined Uh, The arc of the film is that there's some very bad guys at the top of the tower. Good guys fight the bad guys until they fight the big bad guys end of movie. You know, it's like, it's so like on wheels or, you know, like it's, it just rolls. It's just rolls. Yeah. It's one of the only movies I've watched where like, it doesn't, it's like very formulaic Mm -hmm. in terms of like how it's made. And that's, what's good about it. It's like it, it, it knows exactly. exactly what the formula is. It is paint by numbers in the best possible way. Like you just described the plot of Die Hard. You know? Yeah. And that's yeah, what this but is. It's, you know? It's even more like we don't even have to see like him with Holly and like this like the plant and payoff right. of like the romance arc. There is a little bit in this film because uh Anderson is a psychic and we have some setup that it's like 
well, she's a fa- she failed the ju- uh, judge test, but she's the best psychic we've ever seen by a huge margin. Therefore, she's uh, an asset to the force. You know, like there is that scene. But other than that, it's just literally two people walk in, two people walk out, you know? I mean, absolutely. I think the funniest thing about this movie in hindsight is that the very last question that the the that dread is asked is like did she pass because she's doing like a training day basically right yeah yeah it's training and day. he says i mean well spoilers uh he says she passed but like he could have said no and i don't know if i would have felt and, worse about the movie i think it would have been fine either way yeah you just right? be like that dread is a piece of shit <laughs> or you just be like uh yeah i guess that's uh, you know like that's how it works you that's know we how fall the in love with uh, olivia thoroughly and <laughs> uh, slash anderson and you know like she gets she's the protagonist you know yeah he is the he's truest just this, judge he's just this murder force you know <laughs> it, uh, yeah and he, it's great it's it's fun for what it is i, I think it's uh, better than fun for what it is because i think that's the best that all action movies can be Exactly. Like fun yeah. for what it is is the ultimate compliment for an action movie, mm-hmm. you know. Because mm-hmm. like, I mean, I can't think of one offhand, but I'm sure there is one. But very rarely does an action movie do like deep human drama, mm-hmm. and that really never really happens. So like, nope. you know. Yeah. By the way, Carl Urban should always have that helmet on. Oh yeah, he <laughs> like, should just be a chin. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a chin with a sloping down scowl yeah. on his lips all the time. Boy, Marvel, I hope you're listening. Carl Urban, I know he's already in Thor, but put him in as Chin Man. Yeah. Right? Chin Man, that's yeah. a Marvel property. At least get that chin some work. You know what I mean? Maybe he could be oh, a chin man. double. Ooh. And he's got, he kind of got that, just that constant grimace that just yeah. makes, that just charms the fuck out of you. Yeah, it really does. Like, uh, it doesn't work on all the actors, but like, De Niro's got it and Carl Urban's got it. You know, yeah. just that downturn, like, I'm not liking this. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. It's quite good. Um, so I have an argument about it. I'm ready to hear it. And this is a little more atypical for director piece theater because I don't want to really go into, uh, you know, necessary like what I find the most fascinating, f- fascinating aspect of this film is like it's nimbleness, kind of like what you how you, you mentioned it was just like uh, so simple. It's nimbleness in its approach. It's a well-crafted film watch it uh it but it doesn't like reinvent shots or have a particularly like rich bag of tricks that the director is employing so that's not really what today's episode is about where we're going like look at what he did here look at what they did there it's fast it's ultra violent the writing's solid uh and there's enough gunfights to make you go home happy but it does some very smart things to make it streamlined and that is kind of birthed in my opinion out of the producer mindset of how do we make this a viable movie? Um, and oh. it does several things in order to do that. And this is kind of more of a producer piece episode. Producer if it makes sense. piece. My God. Yeah. It's, I think it's important that a director is always thinking about all modes of production and all disciplines. And so sometimes the best part of a director's job is that they, you know, cast an incredible cast or they have the right team behind it. And likewise, knowing and being self-aware of what your property is and what makes people sit down in the seats 
for this film in particular, knowledge of that is so supremely important, especially given like the mid tier budget we're working with. So this one is more about, uh, it's more about like how it w- it knew what it was in the marketplace that it was coming out of. I love this. Uh, and it, uh, and he, and exactly why it had to do that in order to succeed. Because even though, and I'll go into it a little bit more, it wasn't a runaway success in terms of box office. It's kind of an anomaly at the time and still kind of is because it's definitely made its money back. And it, yeah, yeah. it's, if you look at the ratio of like, percentage of money back percent like uh the home video stuff like that the whole white idea of it being a cult film uh it's done very well it and really that's has. something that we shouldn't ignore given the change of the guard in terms of how distribution works so that's kind of what i wanted to talk about in a chestnut I, I love this because the sad fact is as filmmakers uh you really don't get to be uh like an artist on an island like like uh, you and I were never able to be, for instance, David Lynch at Cracked. Right. Like, right. That, that wasn't possible. There was always a measure of trying to figure out, is this worth investing the energy in? And, like, can this pro- can this video or can this production justify financially the investment of time and energy? Right? right. Like, so f- I hope you don't mind me uh, uh, educating the audience a little bit. But like, yeah, go ahead. For instance, one of our one of our biggest sketches was that uh, sketch Monday in Action Heroes, which we called on YouTube uh, what action heroes do on their weekends, I think, or on their days off, or something like that. That's what we titled it. And if you remember, that was written by Daniel O'Brien in like 2011. Like it was written really early, and it took three or four years to justify making it. Because it was so expensive that we weren't certain that, that we would get enough clicks to justify doing it. So, right. like, even at an internet video level, and, and this is a conversation that Dan and I had and uh, that Jack and I had many, many times. I had it with Oren, too, as I recall. Uh, everybody wanted to make it. It just was like, how is it going to make its money back? And it was a legitimate conversation that prevented that video from existing for four years. So like, you can imagine how much more complex these conversations get when it's a big budget thing like Dread. And by big budget, I'm putting that in air quotes. So like, yeah. for the audience, just know there's no such thing as a filmmaker who isn't having these conversations unless you're David Lynch or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. Right? He mm-hmm. doesn't have to worry about that. Would you say that's yeah. a fair characterization? I'd say that's it. Like <clears throat> that is exactly the parallel that deals with like the uh, overhead of the film industry. Um, that's how studios make their money, you know, and it's how they hedge bets and it's how they make decisions on what's greenlit and what isn't greenlit is based off what like the garbage in garbage out kind of dynamic of the supply and demand of the market. 100%. And we were doing the same thing on our smaller budget, you know, like comparatively our small smaller budget projects in internet comedy just like people do in the marvel game when they're spending 250 million dollars i mean you know? yeah the marvel game is uh, like a real game of 4d chess ultimately right yeah. like cause it, because because it's not just the movies it's the it's all the merchandising and it's the franchise yeah it's this and, vertically integrated yes beast. <laughs> words yeah. that just make you sigh with exhaustion if you're a yeah, movie but, consumer you know that's how it works but it's a business and that, those are the People hold the uh, keys to the kingdom, so to speak. 100%. Do you mind if I ask you one other question before you embark on on this? So you didn't mention the movie The Raid Redemption, 
do you feel like the Raid Redemption, which came out around the same time, right? 2011? Yeah, 2011. Do yeah. you feel... That's an Indonesian martial arts film, if people haven't seen it. Very good. Yeah. Very smart. Did a lot of really cool things, like reusing hallways. Like, you got to look at these types of films, because I'd say they're very similar, in that they're, you know good guys go to the top of a tower. It feels like a, um, a video game, right? And in the same way that they, uh, the raid or video games do like reuse assets, the raid stayed under budget by like basically having one big uh, like T intersection hallway uh, that they would just paint a new floor on. So it's like, oh, we're on floor four or we're on floor five, six, seven, 19. But it was the same hallway. They would just redress it because they didn't have infinite space nor infinite, you know, resources to get. So they just kept doing shooting in the same area, but they make it look different enough that you wouldn't notice it. Like the casual viewer wouldn't notice it, but it made their shoots extremely nimble in the same way that I think uh, the American version with a little bit more bang and explosion uh, dread was definitely uh, compared to. Uh, and this one like raid got a lot of rave reviews yeah. um, and it was compared to it. I was going to you know? say uh, as a person who's watched both movies, the raid is one of the only movies in the last 10 years for me that felt like something new in the action mm -hmm. genre. Like, it felt like, mm -hmm. wow, that's something new. And Dread is, like, kind of comparable in some way. Like, I wouldn't say Dread is uh, reinventing the wheel the same way that Raid might be. No. But it's kind of comparable. And that's uh, quite a compliment for this movie, right? Yeah, I think that's uh, well said, uh, specifically because um, there's something that this film does that I think is good to have in your head early on before I even begin, which is that... It, while like the raid, it ch charms us with its action sequences and its gunfights and its visual style. Uh, it is a branded property. Judge Dredd came out with Stallone in 95 and wasn't exactly a runaway hit, but it already comes from the reason that that was made. And the reason that this was made is that it comes from a very well-known, richly written comic property. So something that the raid does, or sorry, something that dread does is that it doesn't rely on those large scale expositions and world building that like kind of judge dread does, or like a lot of um, branded properties that we see that are carried over to film as franchises do uh, because it knew that it's like, nah, they know what they want. We know what they want and we don't know if we're going to make a second one. I mean, it's still up in the air and I definitely, you know, X many years later, I don't think it's going to be remade in the same way. Oh. But I think that those people who worked on that and I'll go more into that later knew what they were doing to the point that if you ever want to jumpstart a franchise, Seek out these people because these people yeah. know what they're doing yeah, and yeah. they're very, very good. And they they know where what the pitfalls are. And like in the raid, they know how to streamline it <clears throat> to such an extent where the raid didn't have a branded icon to kind of like pull from. So this is kind of like the American version of the raid to me. Sure. Because it's all of the Americanness come back in. Like, well, we need some stars. Well, we need some, you know, like in Indonesia, they didn't, ha they don't have these problems because it's just like, let's just get the film right. made. They also Here it's like, <laughs> what do we do? Do we talk about like all of the mega cities and all? No, they just throw it all into one, like one minute long monologue at the beginning that just 
gets the narr- narration out of the way and then you're just off to the races. It that's true. They do sort of by having the first like like first bit be a chase scene, they kind of mm-hmm. satisfy your desire for like the big world action. And they're smart. They're yeah. like, "Yeah, okay, so you've seen it. So you know what this would be like if we did this." Now we're not gonna cuz you know, you've seen it. And it's like, "Yeah, you're right. I guess that's true." Um, yeah, I want to talk about set pieces sure. and that specifically in a second, but I want to set the stage a little bit and get into this argument uh, a little bit with a little bit more uh, minute detail. Um, so first thing I want to talk about is the high budget landscape that we're walking into the into this with. And I don't know how many people remember 2012, but this is going out. This is coming out with the Avengers. It came out the same year. And if you remember the Avengers, it had like one of those great set pieces of the Battle of New York. There's nothing equivalent in this film. The budget of the Avengers was 20, 220 million. Dread was about 45 million. I just want that in people's heads when we talk about this, because that in modern markets, we have a box office situation, specifically in the action category, where smaller films may be directly competing with another film that is up to five times its budget. Right. And lower budget action and adventure movies really do have an uphill battle. It's gotten so bad that anything under 50 to 80 million seems to not really exist. Like they just aren't greenlit. They aren't made. Anything under $30 million is not an action movie or an adventure movie, or at least if it is, it's not a version that se- it just seems entirely unrecognizable in the block under blockbuster landscape. That is like the late 2000s and up to now. Do you, do you so, think, uh, just really quick question, do you think yeah. that's because uh, in order to make an, a less than $80 million action movie, you have to agree we're not going to have an A-list star in it? That's, there's, I mean, it, it's kind of, yeah. I mean, that's a, a wider, more complex question because I think that that's not how it's done. I think it's, from what I understand, it's done more with like, what kind of package is it? It's like you go with right, like right, the right. $80 million package. So yeah, you get a star with that. Sometimes there are films, especially in the indie circuits, which this definitely wasn't. Um, you get things where it's like, oh, if some ver- some big star really liked the script and they're just like saying, ah, fuck it, I'll be in it. Then it like changes how the film can be made. And then you realize, well, then that allows us to get actually a few more million dollars because now investors are coming in because now there's like, there's emphasis behind this now. So now it's like, even though the script is good, we can really make it a bigger picture. And then they kind of go back and writers think about like, well, maybe this isn't this location. Maybe it's this location. Things that they didn't see before, you know? That's interesting. Yeah. It comes with the territory of having like an A-list star, which this has none of, Right. but Carl Urban isn't not a recognizable face. Well, but then they take away his recognizable face. They do. Like they just, That's one of the reasons it's awesome. They dread, and I think they one of the reasons that like Carl off. Urban... They dread his face yeah. right off, Abe. <laughs> yeah, he's just a chin. He's chin man. Uh, and it's, you know, like yeah. this is the star of Pathfinder, you right. know? <laughs> you don't take his face away. I, this, uh, no, Carl Urban is like, he's done some good stuff and he's always played like a side character. But um, when he, this made us realize, and he was in, in 2005's doom as well right right right. like he was all over this market at this around this time was he in like star he trek was, was that it was star yes trek out yeah right he's, he's bones yeah right 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 but it yeah so star trek and then also at this point uh lena hetty 
has been was... in Game of Thrones for a year, right? Oh yeah, but but probably not a big star at that point. Not well, pretty big. Okay, uh, pretty big. Yeah, because um, I was I was surprised she was in this movie a little bit, not in a bad way, but just like wow, right. they got Lena Headey. She kills it though, right? Well, she always fucking kills it. That's like all she does. Mm-hmm. She's a she's a fantastic actor. I I do think that's like some of the secret sauce of like a movie as good as Dread, is like mm-hmm. a little bit like we cast somebody who we shouldn't have gotten a hold of, but we did. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's part of the yeah. success story here. Because again, and I think to come with. <sighs> Sorry. I don't know. Alex Garland's script is very, very it, good. It, 100%. I, I will script. never take a single thing away from the directing or writing of this. I think they're yeah. both quite good. But for it to be a hit, like a legit hit, it like it, again, it's going against Marvel, like you said. And Marvel's got Robert Downey Jr. You know what I mean? Like, And that's worth mm-hmm. whatever amount of money they're paying him because he's fantastic in it, right? They don't have the option for right. that, but they did catch Lena Headey on the way up. And they did catch Carl Urban's chin uh, on yep. the, in its prime. So I guess there's that. Yeah. To, to... And there's a few other, you know, uh, Olivia Thurlby was like kind of in uh, indie screen, darling. Uh, you have Avon Barksdale is in it. Oh, uh, that's right. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I forget his name. It's, it, it's Wood something. I forgot. Uh, yeah, I forget. Yeah. He's just a thug, basically, that is uh, kind of a psych- psychopath that... Uh, Olivia Thurlby just dunks on with her psychic powers, and it's awesome. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. The big picture is small pictures have had more writing against them than ever before. The Disney whales have eaten up most of the modes of distribution, and it's gotten to the point that it seems like there needs to be a checklist of unnecessary like three things or three avenues to success. And those are, in my opinion, one, markability of the property. In other words, the branding and the stars that we were just talking about. Two, the marketable uniqueness of the film, i.e. a narrative or stylized trick that can be sold on, usually by visual merit. Like that's We see that a lot more often in horror movies. Like I don't know if you remember, there was like a horror movie that was like a... It was like a short film that was posted on Reddit, and then someone found it, and it came out to become a film called Lights Out, I believe. Oh, yeah. Which was just a visual trick that was very terrifying, where someone turns on a light, and they can see a shadow, and turns it uh, turns it back on, and there's nothing there yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. So sometimes that something that can be put into a trailer that's very, very cool can usually sell this. This one did have something like that. It had the slow-mo aspect where there's a lot of beautiful cinematography and like color correction. And just like, it's, it's very cool. The slow-mo was, Um, was a, was really great and, and upped the production value of the movie. Exactly. And it was not necessary. It could just be any drug, you know, but they chose to go that way. And that's something. And then the third thing I would say is the main thing that I think this made this thing, uh, work is that it became charming in the amount that it did this, which is leaning into the leanness of the production scale, which is we're only making it for 45 million, about 10 to 20% of that is already eaten up by stars just being there. How do we actually put this in front of camera? And it's just like, okay, uh, let's just shoot it all in one building. Let's make a, you know, like script, let's get the script to be on rails. You know, let's figure this out. So, and that's the part that I think is really nuanced and specific to the success of dread. So, so ultimately what you're really arguing for here is that like the limitations of the budget on this movie, uh, Mm -hmm. made a team 
ultimately perform their creative like to their creative excellence. Right, yes. like like because they were limited, they they got more creative and therefore made a better movie. <clears throat> so a note on that, and yeah. for people who've seen this, I'll go through it pretty quickly. But people who haven't seen it in a second, I'll talk about the numbers and what this means. But real quickly, here's the set pieces of dread, and the reason I pointed these out is that that is what takes up your money, right? Uh, for the most part. Uh, so here's the action sequences. So the first one is, as you mentioned, Dredd chases some perps in his motorcycle, flips their car, a gunfight ensues. Truly great. Dredd follows the last of them into a residential towers and kills them. I'd say that's, that's a pretty big tier. Yeah. I mean, that takes up about eight to nine minutes. Yeah. The second one is uh, what we call level 39 uh, in the movie, which is just like the floor that they're at. And he infiltrates a slow-mo den, and we have a sequence where it's like they just blow people's faces off. That's also pretty big. It takes a good five minutes and it's uh there's a lot of special effects in that and stuff like that they're not great but there's definitely a lot of them the third uh sequence is mama's first like team is sent over to kill the judges it's over pretty quickly so i'm gonna call that like a smaller category and don't worry i'm counting this so don't you don't have to count thank god uh, the fourth one is the machine gun turret sequence probably one of the more famous in this yeah, yeah, yeah. film which is real big where they just shoot out a side of the fucking tower i would say uh, that's like ultimately the biggest thing it's so yeah. that's probably the biggest money suck yeah. honestly because yeah. it's extended a lot of shit went into it uh there's a short small sequence of shooting that happens when anderson loses her gun i wouldn't even call that an action fight but it does take a little bit of uh production value to pull that off the fire rainstorm is like so after Anderson's taken, Dredd comes back and he just rains fire upon a whole cluster of people. I'd say that's fairly big. Uh, the reunification of the judges, because then we have the subplot where the judges who are in on it arrive yeah, because judges. Mama's got them under. Yeah. yeah. And that's pretty smallish, the reunification, but it's like it's over pretty quickly and it's not a lot of flash it's a lot of like people just huddling in corners and then popping out and shooting, but it is, it's a new space. Yeah. It's, you know, there's some extras stuff like that. It also, the eighth one is the slow-mo lab battle, which is like probably the second biggest next to the machine gun turret sequence where it's the like, uh, dread fights the final judge and basically they explode the whole area. And then the final beat of the fight sequences is mama's appro the approach to mama and the very short battle that ensues because they They've taken out all of her lieutenants, so it's basically just Judge Dredd comes up and just throws her out a window. Uh, so the reason I did that all is that in a lean like 98 minutes that this film is, there's about five to six biggish fight scenes with three to four smallish like flourishes of action is I guess what I call them. And the reason that's important is because keeping the feeling that every 10 to 12 minutes in your action film is filled with two to four minutes of action is very, very important. That ratio is familiar and welcome to typical movie going audiences. So when that ratio isn't met, you typically go like, this is boring or like, why am I watching Dracula untold? You know, like, or something like <laughs> that. Like it's, there's so many bigger action movies that right. fail at this because they get, they fall in love with the lore or they fall right. in love with, they try to make a bigger, like, what's the love drama between Dracula and like his wife or whatever, you know, it's just like, Oh, that's a bad decision. I'm 
signing up for Dracula movie and you want to make it gritty and dark and it's PG-13. But more on that later, this is very, very much so an R-rated film, which is one of the reasons that they went for the ultraviolence. Oh, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. So just briefly on all this action, I feel like you did a great job of like isolating what the action set pieces are. Mm-hmm. But, like, the other thing is, this movie cooks at a slightly higher simmer than most movies do because yes. they never really stop fighting. That's they never one really of the other things. Fighting. Yeah, exactly. Because when you think about it, if every 10 to 12 minutes, like, if every, if every like, 11 minutes you have three minutes of action, that three minutes of action is also cut up with 30 seconds of dialogue here. Right. So that kind of balloons up. And before you know it, you're reaching like transition phases in what we call the boring part of that 10 minutes or 11 minutes. Like really, it's like every, you know, few minutes you get a gunshot. Okay. And yeah, that was 10 minutes or 15 minutes there where they didn't shoot anybody. But then there's a huge section for five minutes. You know, it's, it just really makes you feel like you're always in the dread. You're always in the dread. You know, you're not like in a different movie. You're totally dreaded. Every time. Yeah, you're, you're old to dread. Yeah. <laughs> I agree so, with that. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to say, and then, it, sorry, and then I'll seed the no, mic no, back to yeah. you. So there's a point, like it was the it was the judge fight, which by the way is another great movie title for this movie. Just judge fight. Judge fight, uh, yeah. By the way, one of the, the, the king of the judges, yeah. <laughs> her name is Chief Judge. I love it. Uh, of course. Why not? Which is just great. Why not? Because we've had a sketch that we've wanted to make for everyone for like in, that crack that we never actually made called uh, uh, Chief Squad. Yeah, Chief Squad. Uh, which is like, put down your badge and gun. And it's all, it's an entire uh, police department full of chiefs. Uh, God, what a, I love that <laughs> And it sketch. just feels like when you're all judges, it kind of, and one of you is named Dread. Like, right. <laughs> there's no... You can't take this. No- How do you take it seriously? I don't because know. it's asking itself to be so serious. You got to change your name to something even worse. It's than hilarious. That. Yeah, it's Chief Dread <laughs> or Chief Judge. Judge Annihilation or some shit. Yeah, exactly. So, just briefly though, <laughs> during the judge fight portion, is when the movie starts to sneak in what I would call action that's more interesting because of the drama, and less interesting because yeah. of the action set piece, which every action movie must do. Every action yes. movie at the like, especially when we get toward the third act, must ultimately move away from just giving you set piece action and give you action that's that's meaningful because of drama. And are you talking about like mostly uh, Thoroughby slash Anderson's arc? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I I think that does a really effective job because like the whole idea of entering her mind space because he's a sociopath. He's like, I'm going to shock you. And I'm going to like, here's a, I'm going to put in your head, like, because you reading my thoughts, you suck in my dick. And she's like, nah, son, you don't understand what a psychic is. Right. I'm going to destroy you. And then he like pisses himself. That was super chill. Uh, yeah. But also just the fact that, and it's like a thing you hadn't considered, but it's so obvious in hindsight the fact that, oh, we could also just bring other judges who are bribed yeah. to fight Judge Dredd. Because, like, you don't need to see what they're doing yeah. or how they got involved. No. We just need to know that they're corrupt and that can come yeah. out during the fight. And it adds, not only is it like, you know, uh, it meets the bigger, badder boss fight thing, 
But also, mm. it means something emotionally in this film, which is like, oh my god, look how corrupt this team is, you know, like, and that's very satisfying. And this movie did a really nice, smooth job of that. I would argue it also justifies his decision for later when, because Judge Dredd is like basically a very principled. He's all about justice, right? So he's so principled and so controlled that he's going to be the one of like at the top of the movie when he talks to uh, about Anderson, he's like, but she failed. And if you get a fail, you're not a judge. So what what are we doing here? And uh, then he realizes that not all judges are good. Like, because it's a very solitary experience. Maybe he had an inkling of it before, but he has proof literally in his hands uh, from like, killing all these four corrupt judges that he's like you know what anderson's better than any of those guys and they passed so what is a pass really so it like kind of opens up the resolution as well right it's almost like instead of being efficient or capable as being the only criteria for a person to be a judge it's almost Mm -hmm. like he's like hey what about the character of the person yeah you know what i mean which like hey that should matter and this was a pretty good version of that Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. good movie Uh, yeah good movie movie. uh i want to jump into so judge dread was made in 95 and i want to talk about like give you everyone listening a crash course in the economics of from judge dread to dread about what the marketplace and why films were chosen especially in this uh in these budget ranges and what that means so it's been called that 95 to like 2005 was called like the golden era of mainline distribution of cinemas because we had the birth and the advent of the DVD and Blu-ray and it created a huge form of ad revenue that was previously really not existent with VHSs, especially because it was a renting culture um, that just didn't exist until this era. And that's huge because I'll go into why. So to understand the anomaly dread, we must kind of go back to there. The historical studio business, if you put all the studios together, run at about 10% profit margin. For every billion of dollars in revenue, they make about $100 million in profits. And the DVD business represented about 50% of those profits. Uh, And that's what happened from 95 to 2005. That's crazy. Now that's a crazy in number. 2005 or six to 2012, which is about when this film was made. Uh, we have what a lot of studios called the great contraction. And a lot of things went into that. So if a studio's margin of profit was only 10% in the previous time period with the collapsing DVD market, because of several things, I mean, obviously there was, you know, the uh, economic crisis of 2008-9, the collapsing of the DVD market uh, for in the introduction of uh, streaming. There's multiple reasons. There was a writer's strike at one point. Um, you saw this collapsing DVD market that the profit margin was profit margin was hovering around six percent. So that's about fifty percent of a drop in the profits that they're gaining from DVDs in 10 years. That's a, Which that's meant a that if nothing else changed, yeah, yeah, they would just all be losing money. Right. That's how serious the DVD t- downturn was. At best, they could cut their profit in half for new movies. That was the best case scenario. So 
studios became very, very scared. Now, according to Peter Chernin, who was like kind of the last guard of the golden era at Fox, he had an interview in Salon that was very, very good. I'll, I'll, tr- I'll try to link it or if anyone wants to hit me up. It's, uh, it's, uh, it was written by Linda Obst. And she interviewed the guy and he, had, he was just so candid about what had been happening. And this article, I think, took hap- like was written around like two, 2013 or something like that. I can't really remember. Yeah. And he was the right-hand man of, like, Rupert Murdoch. Like, he was being vetted to become the next Rupert Murdoch because he was running both Fox Broadcasting on the TV side and 20th Century Fox Publishing. So he was the whole Fox package, basically. He was the programming master. He was the one determining what they greenlit and what they didn't greenlit. Not necessarily in, like, the room, but just, like, here are here's where we're going with this Fox ship. And he said, quote, I think the two driving forces were the recession and the transition transition of the DVD market. Uh, he said the 2008's writer strike added a little gasoline to the fire. From 2008 to 2011, even legitimate users who would never pirate were going for $3 or $4 video on demand rentals instead of the $15 DVD prices. So that shows you that it's not even skit. Like it wasn't even that it had been cut in half in terms of sales. It's that the new paradigm was just never going to be as lucrative as it was because per capita, we're talking about a third of the price for something. Right. It's also why you've seen since 2012, most movies will sometimes you'll notice that the rentals is, are high especially in tv when you start to look at like uh, i was trying to get uh alex garland in fact uh, on amazon he made a new show called devs and if you want to buy that it's like 15 bucks for a season mm. that's even less because that's you know eight hours of uh content you know so it's just getting crazy yeah so that's where we get into what is called the new abnormal because that's like an, a pun on the old abnormal which was pre the golden era which is the 2012 to nowish so the studios had to pivot right they had to look for international markets and other revenue streams to justify any pitch any leading man or woman any project focusing on what does well on the international market and on streaming so who does well there Churning goes on in this interview to say the implications are you're seeing uh, the studios are frozen. The big implication is that the studios are not necessarily inappropriately terrified to do anything because they don't know what the numbers look like. So it's like he's saying, basically, the problem is that the way things are sliding, there's no room to fail. People are just scared shitless of doing anything bold because they are in completely new territory where they don't know where any of their decisions will, how it will like come out. So they were just super conservative. Well, so the down spiral of originality that we've seen is out of necessity for studios that are specifically not Disney. Cause I mean, Disney does this too because they can and they're, uh, you know, monolith. But in order to stay profitable, Universal, WB, all these bigger studios that are now smaller than Disney had to go say things like, okay, Dwayne Johnson kills it. He's the only one who can be in movies. Why? Because of what he does in the international markets. Okay, this children's book did very well. We need that, those rights. Hold, push the brakes on literally any other film. Right. It's just those two films. 
And that's how, especially, so Disney has the ability to try things because they can justify the cost with their Avengers money. But like when you go to Universal and such, that's why they're, they did. That's why they had to change everything. They don't make movies that are hundred million dollars anymore, really. And when they do make movies, they hedge their bets with things like thirty million dollars, Neighbors, or a comedy, or something like that. They they hedge their bets in the things that they want to try because they they are they aren't soulless. They want to stay creative and they want to try things. They just can't try it with things like action adventure. Uh, and that's where we get into kind of. R rated and how what having an R rated movie actually means in this landscape. So this is now coming from the MPAA and what they have to say. And this is from a Vox uh, uh, article. After rating nearly 30,000 films in 50 years, about 17,000 films have been rated R since it was instituted in 1968. That means over half of movies released in the past past 50 years were rated R. Now, there's a whole bunch of other things that are less relevant, but if you want to know the numbers, about 5.5K have been rated PG or in early versions of the system GP or M. 5,000 were rated PG-13. 1.500 or 1,500, sorry, for rated G. So it's no, uh, and it's also worth noting that the PG 13 category wasn't introduced until 1984. So it's possible some of those films that did receive a PG 13 rating in today's ratings would receive an R. Does that make right, sense? So there'd be, there'd be more R's if the so system. So there's a little, con- yeah. Now let's take a picture of what's happening right now because on average, PG 13 movies make more than three times what rated R movies do at the box office in the United States. So, That's a shocking fact on its own, I would argue. Yeah, like, I, so I why is Hollywood that. still releasing far more rated R movies than they do? Or like, why are they still doing it? Because they, like, they like doing cool shit, Abe. They like doing cool shit. That's actually, that's still a powerful barometer. I just want to remind people that they're not all soulless. Right. Uh, they're just having to, you know, tighten the belt. Uh, and it does make us very frustrated and it makes things like dread non-existent in 2013 PG-13 rated films accounted for 52% of the overall, uh, box office gross. That's insane. Yeah. I can't believe that because rated R was 27%. PG was 16% and G was 3%. Well, yeah, there's like one G movie a year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah none of the years and they do gangbusters by the way right right of course <laughs> uh but they that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> none of the years top 10 this is 13 were rated and the reason i chose 13 is because that's one year after dread yeah none of the years top 10s movies were rated r and there's been far more far rated r films released in the case of 2013 and in the case of t- 2012 30% of all releases uh, that is 30. Yeah. 30. It is 30% of all releases. Right. In other words, right. we're rated R. So 50 to 30. Okay. In the span of less than 10 years. That's crazy. <laughs> so why the short answer is that you make your movie uh, with its intended audience in mind. That's what the studios know to do. So if it's not a four quadrant idea, don't force it to be one. Uh, the studios are still trying to mine uh, streaming revenue. 
Uh, so that's why there's a lot of rated R. They typically do better streaming wise does better on rated, uh, rated R's do better. Uh, but they typically one-offs. They're not typically franchises, which is where the money is. It's interesting that you're saying Um, all this because if you really think about it, it's the opposite of how everyone thinks the studio makes decisions. Like everyone, everyone thinks the studio makes decisions based on like, look, it's got to appeal to the most people. Like it's got like that's got to be four quadrants, so we're not making this picture. And what you're saying is, yeah. no, 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 no. Own the quadrant you're in, and like really own that space, and that's a better recipe to, for success, according to Hollywood. Yeah, exactly. And then it's just that the number of movies being made, not overall, because there's more studios. The overall movies being made per studio is down. Yeah, because they can't so they can't take a risk. That's what changes, right? It. And it, it makes a lot of yeah, sense yeah. because it's like, why, like if you were going to make a Ted sequel, which is something that they had to deal <laughs> with this time, uh, they had to, why would they want to force it to be PG-13? Their audience would fucking right. hate it. So this is another thing up against movies like Dread, right? I mean- It's a PG-13. Yeah, because you don't want the PG-13 Dread sequel. That's not the vibe of this no. movie. And we've seen time and time again, Dracula Untold. Boy, you're really taking uh, shots at Dracula It does today. not work. It just I just watched it recently, and it, it reminded <laughs> and you're me very of it. So I actually had this idea like six years ago to talk about, and I sh- this is when this sh- podcast should have come out, but I, I wasn't doing that and be like, I just put it away and put it in my head. <laughs> you were uh, like, one day, I'll talk about the economics yeah. of dread, and you'll all listen to me. So that's actually just the economics of what's going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the economics of uh, the Dread budget and how it made yeah. money. Box office-wise, Dread earned $27.6 million from markets outside of North America and $13.4 million from North America. That's a not-so-good. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, that's $41 million, which is about 90% or so yeah. of... Uh, it's bu- of its budget. Right. So that's not good. Right. That is considered subpar. If you don't make your money back, you are a failure. I mean, uh, remember the 10% of thing? Of course, but you can, I mean, I remember very distinctly when this movie came out in theaters being like, a Judge Dredd sequel, fuck that. Yep. You know, like, uh, not any interest in it. To my, to my, uh, I mean, I've missed out on eight years of pleasure, obviously, so. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, what a you fool have. I was. But now you're here, and we all get to be in the Dread team, <laughs> Team Dread. Here's the thing, and here's the crux of my argument: is that when you look at the numbers, Dread has done extremely well for a forty million dollar movie, comparatively, because you can't compare the movies of the Avengers and the Afterlife of the Avengers and like the domestic markets and the international markets for video sales. You can't compare it. You just can't because they got. They got the hugest scaffolding to yell across the entire globe, look at my movie. It's like dread is just like, Hey guys, if you want to check out my movie, that'd be cool. You know, it's like, no, it's not, no one's going to buy your fucking movie. Well, And so everybody, we have to compare it to other $40 million. Right. And everybody has to remember like all these budgets that you see don't include advertising budgets. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Dread's advertising budget's not going to be $40 million, whereas, mm-hmm. like, Avengers might be. It might be even more mm-hmm. than that. You know, like, uh, and those numbers never get quoted outside the studio. So, yep. And that's a huge determining and, factor. And so here's where it goes crazy. Ready. So it got 
in its in the first few years, and I don't even think it's been updated on like there's like a website called number like by the numbers or the numbers.org or something like that that like gives you all the numbers. <laughs> and it's about the movie industry. And it's uh it made in its first few years 50% of its box office revenue in DVD and Blu-ray sales, baby. That's, remember that 50% number? What does that remind you of? It reminds you of a metric of a bygone era, yeah. the golden era. Yeah. Nobody does this anymore. No one can do this anymore. Not with things like DVD sales and streaming happening. So its total estimated domestic video sales, to put that in a number, is 25 it did it did just it did half of what it did its box office globally on just DVD Blu-ray sales. So I don't know about you. Fifty percent is a great barometer for this being an intensely cult film. Yeah. In fact, for a short while, I looked it up. In January of 2013, when it came out uh, on DVD and Blu-ray, Dread topped all Blu-ray, DVD, and digital download sales for a short time as an early release. Word of mouth and reviews had like survived past its very, very short theatrical run and outcompeted things like Taken Two and End of the Watch. Damn. Which were immediately in its category as action or sure, adventure sure, films. Yeah. Now it wasn't a stellar month, so some people might like look at that and like, eh, well, much didn't much didn't come out at that. And that is true. In terms of home entertainment releases, it wasn't like a great month. But if you're paying attention, according to the old systems, it had no right to be there in the first right. place, even if it wasn't a good month. Also, <laughs> and it was number one for an entire month. Also, just that is insane. Just because shitty DVDs come out that month doesn't mean I have to buy a DVD. You know what I mean? Like, nope. it's not like you just don't buy. Yeah, DVDs. exactly. Which, by the way, that's what most people are already doing. Not buying them. And this made, and this made twenty one point five million dollars just because of people going, "I'll take a dread, please." Yeah. Um, and that is insane because that's one year after it, like basically came out, or like nine months to a year after coming. So, like out. the the uh, seventy five people that watched the film just were screaming at everyone they knew, like, "You don't understand. Exactly. This is dread." Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the reality we're in. Yeah. And here's where... So this is kind of like, what's the sauce? What makes Dread special? And this is my take. So this is me going away from the numbers and just trying to say like what I think about this and why I think it's important and why I think you think... You, sh you should think it's important. Is unfortunately, the realization of all this math is that water is wet. It's like, yes, PG-13 does well, but people still like making rated R films. Avengers has more money. Avengers gets back more money. All this stuff is like, yeah, everyone knows this. Dread is a well-paced, efficient, and in a manner of its own serving, a humble film that is very aware of its place in the pecking order and in the market and definitely in the desire of its fan base because it's a cult movie. People liked it. In our new like international and streaming world order, mid-tier films and to a greater extent lower tier films, which I haven't even talked about, need to be super wise to this if they intend to survive much less to be produced to begin with. Interesting. And my take on it is that uh, on top of choosing like s available scaled actors and branded properties like Dread did, which at this point is like kind of a given necessity to even play in this market. Like you kind of need to be like 
something like a Harry Potter. What's, what's the new one? It's like Artemis Fowl or whatever uh, is coming out. Like uh, everything is just like, I don't know. It was a book that did well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Then let's throw a PG or a G on it and let's put a Josh Gad in right. it and let's go. Right. You know, it's just like, that's how these things are being designed. Right. right? Yes. It's true. That's sad, but true. So Dread's success comes from a small but effective bag of tricks in terms of the filmmaking, including like the stylization and the lean, efficient manners that we're talking about. And often uh, the set pieces of violence that give their audience what they signed up for, what they wanted. But its efficiency is something to be of, and it's a lesson to be mimicked. It exists in a massively comic property where traditionally the allure of like immersing its audience in heavy exposition and world building out of hope of its future sequels is like what they pay a lot of attention to and put in the movie and it just doesn't work yeah and this movie avoids that at all costs they go out of their way to avoid it in fact and look at what it did so the numbers seem to be telling us restraint and control of your branded iconography (laughs) That's interesting. I'm just saying, Dread, much like the titular character, lean, mean, fighting machine, baby. Oh, I love Dread. <laughs> it's so smart, and it shouldn't exist. No, it, it it doesn't. It doesn't fit any of the metrics, even though you've just laid them out. It doesn't. It doesn't fit any green lighting metric. It makes me wonder. Like, yeah, st- I still feel like I don't know why they greenlit it. Do you feel like you know why they greenlit it? I think that that's kind of why I brought up the rated R thing. I think that there's something to be said about rated R markets of like, this is like, if there's the equivalent of the producers, like one for them, one for me kind of thing, this is it. This is like, I kind of want to see this because look who's behind this. This looks awesome. I'm like, I'm looking at the lookbook and the, the designer that they drew the thing on and here's the script. Alex Garland wrote it. He, you know, so like he's coming out with ex machina and it's like, that's doing well. And you know, like, so they're looking at this shit. Your belief in then is that like this, like dread is the ultimate, perfect Hollywood story of like, hey, look, it like some talented people pitched the shit out of it. And then so they got some they got some executives say, you know what, what the hell, let's try it. And then because they made it well, it succeeded, even though it was defying all the statistics. I think in a manner, yes, I think what it is, is that if the best case scenario of original ideas coming into this market because of the complexity of it and the everything going against you stacked up against you and it's only gotten exaggerated in uh 2019 2020 uh kind of landscape this is the best case scenario <laughs> so that's the reality so, and it's sad <laughs> so what you're saying it's is super sad. what you're saying is dread is really our salvation for movies that's what you're that's what I'm you're saying. I'm saying that if you ever if you ever want to get out of like to quell like Disney dread, like the dread of Disney yeah. taking over everything. Yeah. You gotta go watch some dread. <laughs> <laughs> or the equivalent, the modern equivalent. Yeah. Uh you know, you gotta go support these films. I, I heard this argument a lot when the Pacific Rim came out. And I think that that is true. I think that we should support our bigger like our are huge swings, um, so to speak, in terms of the original content, so that we don't, you know, die a thousand deaths of remakes. But a re- there, if you look into it, remakes have always been happening. It's oh, not yeah. as prevalent as I think people think. I think people always think it's prevalent. It's true that we grew up in an era, in the golden era of our tour fandom. Right, right, right. 
that we were, and relatively generationally, filmmaking is still pretty new. It's still only like 100 to 120 years old, right? Pretty pretty new. And yeah, and so generationally, the fact that the 80s and the 90s happens, that's the anomaly. Our childhood is the anomaly. Was the anomaly. Mm. We were the ones who were saturated with new ideas and gremlins and Jurassic Parks that even though I guess that's a bad example because that was a book. But like we were given these crazy ideas of how films can be. And the reality is that that isn't viable anymore. You're never going to have another Spielberg. Yes, you may have a good director who's Spielbergian or in the same way, dominant like Spielberg, but you're never going to have someone who's purely tour who works outside the studio system to such an extent that they're able to get millions and millions of dollars in order to make their stuff. Like, yeah, the that's things hard to that do Spielberg now. did for fifty million dollars to ninety million dollars are much different than what we can do today, and Dread is more close to that iteration of filmmaking, that working inside the system than any other thing that we have available. Otherwise, your movies on like the the indie circuit, it's working at festivals, it's five million dollars. Mm. And yet, Abe, there's a part of me that sees Dread as the as the uh antithesis of what you just said right like because it's working inside a studio uh it's partly that and it's partly that like i look at this movie and i feel like a a sense of hope that like look this is a pretty uncynical project you know like it's it's a project nobody needed but somebody really cared about it like let's try this and because it was a well-made movie people talked about it i think you're right in both regards i think that no you're absolutely right i'm just to put it in perspective or to like why I can say that as a response is I'm saying that the, the landscape is bleak. This is a shining example, right? This is the, this My, is a, a diamond in the rough, Abe. This is the Aladdin yeah, of it movies. Is. Yeah. We should cherish dread. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I am also saying that like for people who didn't know what, like in terms of the awareness of culture of what dictates what's made and why we're frustrated and you know xyz there's a lot longer a lot a conversation to be had and a lot smarter people to probably have it with but this is just from my awareness of you know where the money comes from dread isn't going to happen spielbergs aren't going to happen uh so we got to fight you know, like crazy to try to make them happen. And this is the iteration that we can afford. Lock down your movie studio and, you know, make sure that you shoot your way out. Just like Judge Treadwood. Isn't that what you're saying? Yeah. Isn't that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Dread is the hero we want and... Right, right. That's what what I'm saying. (laughs) What a terrible joke. No, but that's thank you. <laughs> no, I meant mine. I meant mine about the studio. Okay, uh, but also both, of them. <laughs> but both of them, uh, but both of yeah. us. Yeah. So I, that's my soapbox. I love this because, and... uh, admittedly, it's not uh, it's not the craftiest. It's it's still a little hard to say exactly why. Like it's like it, which is what makes it hard to repeat the dread experience, right? Like. Uh, but like these things do happen, right? These like once in a while, these movies do come out, right? I haven't given up hope yet, Abe, is what I'm saying. I still believe that one day we'll get out of this, uh, this apocalyptic tower of movies into a, you know, a great utopia. We will, you know, we're, we'll see. Uh, I think that, 
I think that it's one thing is very clear is that the last three decades have been transformative in so many ways that it's almost mind-numbingly hard to focus on, you know? Um, and I think that there's things like uh, TVs that have limited, like I, I mentioned Alex Garland cause I think he's so fucking smart he's, and he's, he's also one of my favorite great people. director. Uh, he knew he's also new to pivot yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Uh, to he's doing TV now and uh, devs is out uh, and it was, it's on FX, which is kind of like FX. Why would you go there? You know? Um, but I think he's smart and I don't, I haven't seen all of that show. I don't think, I think it's only two episodes as of when we're recording this. Uh, but it's like, it's smart to get into like the limited release game because he, he definitely knows who he is and he definitely knows he wants to make longer stories. Um, and he knows that that's where people are putting money right now. So he's going to, and he's, he's fairly attractive after creating annihilation. Right. So, uh, he's going to kind of go into that place and try to work with that medium because it's a medium that he likes. Um, but also it's a medium that, that is what's taking the money right now. Cause that's how, uh, Gen Xers and millennials consume media right, right now. Well, uh, is that we binge and we watch it online. We binge and we and watch so it online and it. we have our content a lot more niched than that. Like yeah. that. And that's been true and becoming more true for 20 years. You know? Yeah, and I like the I like that. I think that that's the salvation. Is that I think that we're uh, gonna be more niche marketed, right? And that's already right. happening. Of course we are. Uh, that's that's and, obviously what's gonna happen. But it also means your budget's gonna be lower because when you have uh, more people behind it, meaning just like more of a air or an atmosphere of success, meaning the audience is there and it's proven. So the money, the people who are scared about losing money will be like, yeah, yeah, let's head our yeah, bets for, with this for one. sure. But they're, they're, you know, they're not necessarily going to go for Michael and my furry movie, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but they would go for something, you know, for $30 million, but they would go for something. Uh, maybe they'll go for it for five, you know, or something like that. Or maybe they'll go for it for 1.2. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, so therefore it will look like a 1.2. Right. You know, it won't look like a $30 million feature, but we're still clamoring for movies like the $30 million feature. I think there's technology also changes the game, obviously, as the uh, modes of uh, creation become cheaper. But you can't replace work. You can't you can't not pay your visual and effects that's, artists. That's really the question is, are they actually becoming cheaper? Because I would argue in some ways they aren't. But the other thing I was going to say yeah. is that the nicheification of movie markets means at some point, Abe, we're going to get an ASMR feature. Isn't that exciting? At some point, they're going to make a feature length ASMR movie. (laughs) I definitely, I think they, they have to, it's, it's the job of the movie to pay homage to your audience that you know you have, but also to try to extend the, your, your grasp a little (laughs) bit. What if they made a, it's going to be compartmentalized into an ASMR movie or something like that. Like an ASMR character or something. I mean, I'm like not that. serious because I don't want there to be an ASMR feature. But I know what you yeah. mean. You just pick any type of thing that's kind of big yeah. right now. Just slime videos. Even if it's small, the future. it's still big and people know yeah. about it. That's a enough. slime feature. Can you imagine just a feature teaching people how to make slime? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a movie. Just talking into the <laughs> microphone like this. Is the slime right here? Go watch Dread. Did you want to get a haircut? Uh, yeah. hey, what kind of haircut do you want? <laughs> 
And then I just like click yeah, my nails uh, together for a year. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't we have like an asmr sketch back in the uh, day we, we certainly just made like, a lot of jokes about it i don't know if we ever really yeah i thought we made jokes yeah. about like <laughs> like the police department kept like breaking in or something like that like hey what are you doing it's <laughs> you know, a like, bunch of chiefs ah, here i think ASMR it was chief people. asmr like, squad wee, wee, wee. yeah <laughs> it's just asmr chief squad i think was the the idea we ultimately yeah did. yeah it's exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the ticket that's that niche that you know, we, we need. need more police chiefs that's gonna make the kids laugh what are the kids like? They like lethal weapon and they like uh, women talking really quiet in front of they microphones. Like soft voiced, tingly spine stuff, you know? <laughs> Bundle it, put it in a picture, we sell it. We call it Dread. Call Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Uh, we can't get him? Call Carl Urban. We can't get him? Get 80% on the line. <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to put your mind around all the numbers, but it's very interesting to look at. I encourage anybody to, you know, just kind of research the movies that they love that have come out in the last five years and see like what the narrative was. Yeah. Uh, and you can find it. There's a lot of good sources. Uh, Vox does a lot of good rundowns of fairly popular movies, like three or four, uh, years on the offset if they're cult. Um, uh, Salon does a pretty good job of covering these kind of things. Obviously, uh, Deadline is more about news, but they have some uh, editorials. Uh, surprisingly, and you know, Tom's gonna love me for this. Uh, there was uh, one or two articles that I found in my research coming from Collider uh, that had a good kind of uh, rendition of like the numbers and what it meant. Uh, and just kind of understanding that makes you realize when you have to punch your ticket when you're going to the theater or you have to punch your ticket in terms of streaming or um, renting versus buying and you know you love the film, prioritizing, because everyone, not everyone's made of money, prioritizing the ones that you think matter and knowing kind of where your money's supposed to go to, uh, obviously most people are just going to be like, well, I'm just going to do what's easiest and do that. Continue to do that. These things are going to be designed to make that sure. easiest as possible. Do for that. You. Ruin but like movies. in the interim, <laughs> if you like dread and things like dread and you don't want to see another Dracula untold, there's some very clear things that you can do. And it's to, once you've seen it, try to, once you know, and you've kind of seen it in any capacity to then also re up and buy it or to, buy the Blu-ray or something like that. Own a physical copy or jump from rent to buy after you've done it. I know it seems like a lot, but they're going to probably make it in the next few years a lot easier where it's just like, oh, you're only paying a dollar or two dollars more um, from your rental to your purchase. Uh, and now you own the movie and stuff like that. I mean, it seems like obvious stuff, but like going out of your way and doing it, I think it's really important. Um, and I think we should support people like this who are in these situations because if you don't you're not going to get these films you're going to get the disinvocation of everything yeah so you know buy a blu-ray of a movie you like otherwise abe will never get to make his dread and we want abe dread i'll never get to make i want an abe dread that's what i want i made it already it's in my mind (laughs) (laughs) but you can't see it (laughs) you really want to see it you'll buy a dvd until you join yeah (laughs) until my mind is a part of the internet uh yeah Yeah. so uh that's kind of yeah that's it okay that's that that's my episode What a delightful uh pitch slash uh set of facts yeah yeah it's 
not typical, but it's just something I was like, I want to talk about dread. So that's what we're doing. And I, and the fact that you hadn't seen it, I was like, well, this I is love, happening. I love now. it. I love that you did a uh, producer piece, by the way. I've, uh, I, I, I also <laughs> love that it was you that did, that did it. Cause like, uh, you're a lot less inclined as a producer than I am. Isn't that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, uh, when we went to classes, you went into you all your fr- <laughs> all your friends were like producers and like cool like producers, and I was off with like the editors and the cinematographers. <laughs> you know, yeah, with your hat backwards, smoking cigarettes. Yeah, I remember. Yes, <laughs> being like, I'll never be anything. I hate my dad. <laughs> and you were like, right. All right, time. Meanwhile, to, I woke up in a time suit to get into Harvard. I don't yeah. know why you're already an MFA at. USC, but in my analogy, you're still trying to get into Harvard. I don't know. I can't wait till I get a real <laughs> master's from Harvard. Yeah. 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 It's, man, filmmaking is wild. It really man. is. It really is. That's true. Yeah. Well, thank you so much yeah. for sharing your theory with us, Abe. Well, I'm looking forward to next episode, oh. which is going to be an Adam episode. It is. So I won't have to do as much talking. I can just sit here and go like, "Hody ho." You can sit here and what pop all my balloons like the, like the mischievous scamp you are. Yeah. The funny thing is, we're gonna re- as you've, the mystique is gonna remove. We're gonna record it right now, <laughs> but it's gonna come out a month later. I, I'll just I'm just gonna pop a bunch of Ambien right now. So I'll see you guys later. <laughs> I have two Starbucks large coffees going right down the gullet right now. <laughs> that's how it works sure. man or you can get some of that weird right. shit that dave always squirts in his throat i don't know what that is uh, yeah i don't <laughs> i don't i know i don't, I don't know i don't even know yeah, i don't even know why uh but yeah that one's gonna be about <laughs> ferris bueller can you believe that Ooh, ferris bueller i can't I wait i know well farewell uh bean arenos farewell thank you once again for joining us for director peace theater